Our Bible reading this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 17, and I'm reading from the New International Version. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen. Wait until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognise him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. This is the precious word of God. Please be seated. We are all familiar with the concept of a mountaintop experience. It's a metaphor that describes an occasion or an event where we experience something that really left an impression on us. And uh, a few mountaintop experiences that come to my mind immediately would be Saturday the 28th of April 2001, the day I married my sweetheart, the birth of our three boys, uh, my graduation, buying our first home or completing my first half marathon. I'm sure that each of you can think about your mountaintop experiences. Oftentimes they will have a lasting effect on us and, and leave us changed Somehow our life is on a new trajectory after experiencing that particular mountaintop. What we are dealing with here this morning is a mountaintop experience of epic proportions. Peter, James and John had the immense privilege of witnessing Jesus radiating in all his glory as the divine Son of God right before their very eyes as well as the supernatural appearance of two of the Old Testament's greatest prophets, uh, Moses and Elijah, as well as hearing the voice of God Almighty. This unique, unparalleled experience would indeed have a lasting impact on the lives of these three men. What was the transfiguration all about Is it just some random event that we read in the Gospels? Why did it happen? What was its significance? I've never really answered those questions before. I'm not sure about you, 
But this has been a really interesting aspect of Scripture to study, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you what I've learnt this week. The context of Matthew chapter 17 is extremely important when it comes to understanding what the transfiguration is all about. Now, you will recall, for those who were here two Sundays ago, we looked at Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus had asked the disciples about the public opinion about who he was. What was their response to him? And the public response that the disciples gave was that people thought that he was one of the great prophets of Israel returned. And this wasn't a bad response because much of Jesus' ministry reflected that of former prophets. But obviously, the disciples had a more intimate knowledge of Jesus. They had journeyed with Jesus for a number of years now. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his authoritative teaching. And they'd begun to perceive that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah. And this was critical. And we read in Matthew 16, verse 16, that on behalf of the disciples, Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And this was like a breakthrough moment, not only for Peter, but for all the disciples. And Jesus commends Peter for that confession. Now that the disciples believe that Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus is able to be a lot more direct with the disciples. And so immediately after Peter's confession, Jesus announces for the first time in an explicit way his coming death and resurrection. And as we discussed, this caused like a head-on collision between Peter and Jesus. Peter had this uh, messianic kind of military uh, political view of the Messiah, as did most of the Israelites. Jesus, on the other hand, held the correct biblical understanding of the Messiah, and the two were kind of at loggerheads. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, who all record the transfiguration, all do so immediately after Peter's confession of Christ and Jesus' announcement that very soon he will suffer, die, and be raised to life. So the timing of the transfiguration is critical. In verse 1, according to Matthew, six days have passed since this kind of dual identity mission conversation has taken place between Jesus and Peter. So almost a week has passed and Jesus cements and confirms his identity and mission in the most powerful way. He's out of the public eye on a high mountain with three of his closest followers, Peter, James and John. Now in the minds and hearts of three incredibly influential, movement-shaping figures, Jesus wanted to leave absolutely no doubt about who he was and what he had come to do. Once the four men had arrived at the hilly peak, the Gospel writers explain that Jesus was transfigured before their very eyes. Transfigured means to be transformed into something beautiful and elevated. And this is exactly what happened. Jesus now appeared in all of his heavenly glory. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. 
made famous by Barney Stinson in How I Met Your Mother, a phrase that is sometimes now used by guys to indicate that they are dressing up in their very best attire is to suit up. And uh, this is almost like the ultimate suit up because Jesus now appears in his entire glory. And what Peter, James and John are witnessing before their very eyes is this incredible moment, this vision of the former glory of Jesus and the future glory of Jesus post-resurrection. Jesus is radiating like the sun in white garments that dispel any skerrick of darkness or impurity. Jesus underwent a dramatic change in appearance in order that these three disciples could see him in all of his glory and know without a shadow of a doubt that he was indeed the Messiah, that he was indeed the Son of the living God. The disciples who had only known him in his human body now had a greater realisation and understanding of the deity of Christ, though at this stage they could still not fully comprehend it. That won't come until after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. During the transfiguration of Jesus, two of the greatest Old Testament prophets appear, Moses and Elijah. Why Moses? Why Elijah? What was unique about these two Old Testament characters? Well, Moses represented the law or the Old Covenant, and Elijah represented the prophets who foretold the coming of the Messiah. Uh, Both Moses and Elijah had visions of God on mountains, Moses on Mount Sinai and Elijah on Mount Horeb. Both of their lives had unique endings. Elijah was taken directly to heaven, whilst rabbinic tradition suggests that because Moses died on a mountaintop alone and that his grave was never found, that he too was taken directly to heaven to be with the Lord. Uh, So Moses, Elijah and Enoch became known as the deathless ones. Interestingly, the Old Testament concludes... The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. It's four chapters long. Chapter 4 has six verses. And verses 4 to 6 are all about Moses and Elijah and uh, their prominent role on the day of the Lord. It's fascinating. And to think that there's this 400-year period between the Old and the New Testament. So for any religious person, for any Jewish person, Moses and Elijah were at the forefront of their mind when it came to the coming of the Messiah. And so what is happening in this moment is hugely significant. In a sense, Moses, who embodies the law, and Elijah, who embodies all of the former prophets, represent the entirety of the Old Testament. So in this moment, it's as if we've got the Old Testament represented by Moses and Elijah, and we've got Jesus, the embodiment and the fulfillment of the New Covenant and of the New Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old and the embodiment of the new. Now, what I find really interesting and insightful is that Moses and Elijah were recognizable. They engaged in conversation with Jesus. Here are two guys who for some time 
had no longer walked the face of the earth. And yet they are obviously alive, they are well, they are identifiable, they are talking with Jesus, they are in relationship with Jesus. Now the disciples had never met or known uh, Moses and Elijah. They didn't have Google images back then that they could kind of get an idea of what they looked like. And when they saw them, they're like, oh, it's Moses and Elijah. But it, the text, which is very much told from the perspective of the disciples, would indicate to us that it wasn't as if Jesus sort of came and introduced Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John, I'd like you to meet my friends here. It's just like the disciples just kind of knew that this was, you know, these two incredibly profound figures that are now recognizable, having conversation with Jesus. So aside from the fact that this incident held so much promise and affirmation that God's word is coming true, as foretold in Malachi 4, 4 to 6, this episode tangibly demonstrates that after we have left this earth to go and be with the Lord, we are still recognizable. And we are capable of dialogue, we are capable of conversation, we are capable of relationship. So, this is just a little bit of an aside. But for those of us who have lost a loved one in the Lord, how reassuring is this text that we will get to see our loved ones in a recognisable form again and get to engage in conversation with them. A day is coming when you will see your loved one in a recognisable form when we will all see one another in our recognisable forms. How wonderful is that? Mark and Luke both indicate that Peter was so frightened that he didn't know what to say. Remember, Peter is like the spokesman. So perhaps he felt as though he needed to say or do something. For those of us who are doing type people, when we find ourselves in moments of greatness, we find it hard to just take it in. And it's as if this is what was happening for Peter. You know, for him, this is just such a, an epic moment. And he wants to be able to participate. But this was a moment for worshipping. This was a moment for being still and basking in the glory of God. Peter's intentions were good. You know, he offered to make three shelters or shrines for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Uh, but clearly this was not what God had in mind. And uh, interestingly for Peter, you know, in that little conversation that he'd had with Jesus only six days ago, Jesus said to Peter and the other disciples that very soon they would in fact see the coming of the kingdom of God. And no doubt, Peter thought that this was it. Lord, this is exactly what you, you said would happen. And he assumed that this was it, and he wanted to be involved. He wanted to have a role to play. Now, God, God, the voice of God interrupts Peter. <laughs> Mid-speech. So a bright cloud, which symbolizes the presence. Throughout the Old Testament, a bright cloud always symbolizes the presence of God. And so this cloud comes and kind of covers you know, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and the three disciples. And this voice 
speaks, the voice of God, the exact same voice speaks the exact same words that were spoken at the baptism of Jesus. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Imagine if you heard the voice of God, how much those words would just be ringing in your ears. This is the message of the Father about the Son. He is well pleased with Him. Listen to Him. Now, symbolically, the appearance of Moses and Elijah represented the law and the prophets. But God's voice from heaven, saying, listen to Him, clearly showed that the law and the prophets must give way to Jesus, who embodies the new. The old is being replaced with the new in this moment. Just as God's voice in the cloud over Mount Sinai gave authority to His law in Exodus 19.9, God's voice at the transfiguration gave authority to Jesus' words. Now, in suggesting that He build three shelters, Peter is giving uh, Jesus kind of equal prominence with Moses and Elijah. But in a moment, when He opens His eyes, having His face flat on the ground... Jesus is all that remains. And Peter stands corrected. Jesus is superior than even Moses and Elijah. By instructing Peter, James and John, future leaders of the church, to listen to what Jesus says, reinforces the truth that Jesus has been speaking to them. And most recently, the very fact that he is going to suffer and die and be resurrected. If they hadn't taken these words of Jesus seriously yet, they will now. By this point, the disciples were flat on their faces in reverent worship and terrifying fear and awe. Consistent with other biblical encounters, the holy, magnificent, awesome presence of God Almighty brings people to their knees and to their feet, their faces. And the disciples are in a position of undivided worship, humility, and devotion. They are way out of their comfort zone. For some of you, raising your hands, even taking your hands out of your side, that's out of your comfort zone in worship. Imagine these guys. They're flat on their faces, hearing the voice of God. That's a posture of worship. That's not comfortable. Worship is not about comfort. Worship is not about our preferences. I mean, for me, this is just a picture of worship. It is a posture of being completely humbled before a holy God. So often we want to make worship about what's meaningful and comfortable to us. But worship is not about us. Worship is actually about emptying ourselves so that we become less and God becomes more. The nature of our worship, friends, is directly tied to our vision of God. The sharper our vision of God, the more meaningful, the more heartfelt our worship will be. What we have here is just this beautiful picture 
of the disciples in a posture of worship that is so consistent with Old Testament worship. It is, it is awe-inspired. There is a sense of holy fear and reverence that I am in the presence of Almighty God and as a mere human being, the only place for me to be in this moment is flat on my face. That is the correct response in the presence of a holy God. But what we see in Jesus, <laughs> he gently comes and touches the disciples. He lifts them and says, don't be afraid. Don't fear. And so here we have this moment. What a, uh, this can help us with the theology of worship. Absolutely, yes, worship is to be awe-inspired as we come into the holy, magnificent, wonderful presence of God. But as Jesus demonstrates, worship is relational. Uh, worship is an invitation to come as you are. Inadequate, imperfect, unholy. <laughs> and worship ought to lead us to listen to the voice of Jesus. This is exactly what the Father said. Listen to him. And the first words that Jesus says to his disciples are, don't be afraid. <laughs> Yet again, Jesus is inviting them to exchange fear for faith. On their way down the mountain, the disciples raise an understandable question about Elijah. Completely understandable for them when we know the context. So based on Malachi 4, 4 or 5 to 6, as I've given reference to a couple of times now, the teachers of the Old Testament law believed that Elijah must come before the Messiah would appear. Let's read that together. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. After having seen Jesus transfigured, and Elijah appear. The disciples are baffled. They don't understand how Malachi's prophecy of Elijah as Jesus' forerunner can be fulfilled if Jesus is truly the Messiah. Jesus is there with them now. Elijah's come and gone briefly. Elijah has not preceded Jesus. It's as if Jesus will precede Elijah. So how can it be that Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. As Jesus explains to his disciples, John the Baptist exercised a ministry that fulfilled Malachi's prophecy. Interestingly, if you go to the first chapter of Luke, it was prophesied over John in utero when he was in his mother Elizabeth's womb that he will minister for the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. John the Baptist took on Elijah's prophetic role, boldly confronting sin and pointing people to God. 
So as the scene closes with Jesus, Peter, James, and John walking down the hill in deep conversation, what is or what was the meaning of the transfiguration? First, it was a lesson for the disciples about who Jesus was. Remember the context here. The disciples, Peter speaking for them, had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they had a mistaken idea of what the Messiah meant, what the Messiah would do. And when Jesus started speaking about his death, it confused them. The transfiguration served to confirm Peter's confession. Peter, you were right. This is indeed the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It showed these three disciples that Jesus was no ordinary man, that he was divine, that he was the Son of God. So God was confirming the disciples' confession. Second, the transfiguration was an unparalleled directive to listen to the authoritative voice of Jesus. The transfiguration was about cementing the authority of Jesus as Messiah. And on that mountain, it was demonstrated that Jesus alone has authority, no longer the law and the prophets, but all authority now rests and all authority is now embodied in Jesus. And this was the plan of God. All of the former prophets in the law were uh, a shadow of what was to come. Third, the transfiguration confirmed that the kingdom of the Messiah would be a kingdom of unparalleled glory. In the transfiguration, the three selected disciples got to see a foretaste of the glory and the victory of Jesus. And the posture of victory would be even clearer to them after the resurrection of Jesus. It was only then that the disciples really started to put all these pieces of the puzzle together. But for now, in this scene, it shows them that Jesus was indeed the glorified Son of God. Fourthly, this scene is so critical in understanding the cross of Christ and his unswerving commitment to it. In Luke's version of the Transfiguration, he tells us that Moses and Elijah were actually talking to Jesus about his impending death. That was the content of their conversation. And this is an important piece of information because, again, it shows us the proper context in which we are to view and understand the Transfiguration. The sequence of events in the narrative here in Matthew point us to the fact that the transfiguration is meant to be interpreted in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. References to Jesus' death and resurrection literally surround the transfiguration. Even on the way down, Jesus told his disciples not to speak of this event until after he had risen from death. Clearly, he wanted them to view this in the context of that. Jesus wanted his disciples to know that he would indeed be glorified, but the way in which he would be glorified would be totally different to how people were expecting. It would only be through his resurrection that he would be glorified. And to be resurrected, Jesus would first have to suffer a terrible, terrifying death. That's why Jesus committed himself to the cross, because he knew that it was the pathway to glorification. 
The disciples never forgot what happened to them that day on the mountain. And no doubt this was intended. John wrote in his gospel in the first chapter, verse 14, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. And Peter, in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18 wrote, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves have heard that voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. As we began this morning, mountaintop experiences often have a lasting effect and those who witnessed the mountaintop experience of the transfiguration were themselves transformed in order to give witness to the unmatched glory of Jesus to the other disciples and countless millions of disciples right down through the ages, including you and I today. And that is John 17, 1 to 13. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that as we spend time opening your word with your Holy Spirit, illuminating it into our hearts, that we can come to a deeper understanding of you. And so, Lord, this morning, as we've just taken a bit of time to examine this kind of awe-inspiring moment of your earthly ministry, the transfiguration, Father, we are reminded of what true worship is all about. Worship is about being humbled before an awesome, almighty God. Worship is also relational. You invite us, Lord, not to be fearful in your presence. And so, God, I pray that you teach us as your people to give you the worship that you were so worthy of. And may we be a people, Lord, who pour more and more of ourselves out so that we may be emptied and that you may be glorified and lifted high. And Jesus, as we've spoken this morning, your Father said to your disciples and, and continues to say to all who follow you to listen to you. And so I pray for each one of us that we might be a people who truly listen to you, who obey you and who follow you in all of your glory. And Lord, as we do so, may we see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for this time and for your presence here with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.